This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Hey guys, my name is Carrie. I'm a senior and I'm on the RUF music team. And tonight I will be reading the scripture. Um, It comes from John 2 and I'll start at the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Hey all, welcome to RUF. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here. Really glad to have you all. Thanks for being in your watch pods or in your dorm or at home or wherever you're watching this. We're glad you're joining us tonight. Uh, If you've been around RUF, you've heard me say this before, but it's a quote that I just love from D.T. Niles. He says, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And I stand before you tonight as a fellow beggar who is not deserving of God's grace, but I I want to point you to the only place where grace can be found. I hope to point you to Jesus tonight. Um, we've been looking at, last, last week we started at this question of how does God encounter the world and how can we encounter him? And uh, what we said last week is that the only way to encounter God that, uh, is through Jesus, through this person of who Jesus Christ is and what kind of God he reveals himself to be. And we see in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives us clues, really apparent clues about who he is and what kind of person and what kind of God he's claiming to be. And John arranges these clues as what he calls signs, seven signs of Jesus's divinity. And what Carrie just read for us was the first of those signs. And I want you to ask this question, what does this first sign say about who Jesus is? Uh, What I would suggest to you tonight is I believe that this is telling us that God is the source of all joy. This sign of Jesus turning water into wine is telling us that God is the source of all joy. It's no surprise then that the angels say to the shepherds when they're announcing Jesus' coming, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. God is this great joy. Jesus The God made man. And if God is the source of all joy, then maybe you're looking around right now and you're like, um, then why is the world so lacking it? 
Like, where is the joy? Why don't I feel joyful? What I want you to see tonight is that God is doing something about that. He does something about it here in this story, but he's also going to do something about it in our lives, in the lives of anyone who would come to him. So three points for you tonight. First, the source of joy. Second, how it's ruined. And third, how it's restored. The source of joy, how joy is ruined, and how it's restored. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, thanks so much for this opportunity to be together. We pray that you would now um, speak to us through your word, and that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first off, I want to look at, about, uh, at how God is the source of joy. There's an Eastern Orthodox theologian that I really like named Alexander Schmemann. And uh, a quote that he has that I think is just so good is this. All that exists is God's gift to man. And it all exists to make God known to man. Now think about what that means. He's saying that all of creation is presented to you and to me as a gift from God. Think about all the stuff that you enjoy in this world. God didn't have to make it that way. Think about when you get back to Austin for the first time, you go to Matt's El Rancho, you order the Bob Armstrong dip. That first bite is God's gift to man. Praise God, hallelujah. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. But like, that is God's gift to man and it exists to make God known to man. When you jump into a pool on a hot day, You feel the rush of cold over your skin. God thought of that. He thought about taste. He thought about touch. God thought about the smell of freshly baked bread. It's from the mind of God, and it's a gift, and it all exists to make him known to us so that we can know what kind of God he's like. When you feel like the bass thump in your chest at a concert that you're really excited about going to, and it moves you, like literally, and emotionally. It's God's gift to man and it makes it exists to make God known to you. When I press my face up against my little Georgia Traps cheek and it smells like the peanut butter sandwich that she ate like three hours ago, God's gift to man. And it exists to make God known to man. See, creation is riddled with these gifts, these signs of God's goodness, of his creativity, of his love for his people. And he is the source of all of these things. He's the source of the joy. And joy is meant to be shared. In fact, joy is better when it's shared. So I used to be a youth pastor in Houston, Texas. And one of the things that we would do every year is we would take our group to Schlitterbahn, which I had not heard of until I moved here. Blew my mind. And I'll never forget taking a group um, right, I was like 23, 24 years old, and a, a lot of the students in our group were actually uh, refugees from Liberia, and they had, they had not been in America for very long. They'd started coming to our church. It was awesome. It's getting to know them, and uh, there was one little boy who was in sixth grade. I'll call him T uh, for this story, and T was very shy. Uh, I ended up getting to know him and kind of see him I'll go all the way through middle school and high school and he and I became really good friends, but for the longest time, T didn't say a word. Uh, he had a big burn on his arm that he didn't tell me about for a long time how he got that. But I'll just say that T had had a hard life. And 
I get to take tea and all these kids to Schlitterbahn. We're in the line going up to the Master Blaster. Some of you may know this ride. Line's a little long. Wait for a long time. I'm with like six, seven other kids. We're waiting in line. We finally get to the top. And if you've been on the Master Blaster before, you know that you have to get on those kind of figure eight sized shaped tubes with you in the back and then a buddy in the front. Well, I'm, I'm the youth pastor. I'm counting up how many people are here, and it's an odd number. It's seven people in our group. And so they start pairing off, and it's like, great. i got to take one for the team. I'm going to go down the Master Blaster by myself. I'm the odd man out. Whatever, I'll do it. So I get on the Master Blaster. I've never been on this thing before, and it's exhilarating. It's an amazing ride. And I go down it, and I don't know if you know this. It's like the only water ride in the world that, like, shoots you up. You like, accelerate going up the slide with these, like, jets that are blasting you up masterfully, I guess, Master Blaster. And... I get on this ride and I'm going and it's exciting, but it's I'm, I, the whole time I'm on it, I'm feeling awkward and I don't know what to do because I'm like, do I scream by myself? That feels weird to be like a grown man, like, ah, you know, on this tube. But also it feels weird to be stoic and like not say anything or make any noise and just be like, quiet going through this ride. I was in my head the whole time. I really didn't even have that much fun. We get to the bottom of the ride, and then I see T walking by, and he's all by himself. And I'm like, T, come get with us. We're going to ride this ride again. So we go in the line. We get back up to the top. Everyone pairs off again. And, of course, T looks over at me. We're the two odd men out. I'm like, all right, dude, we're doing this thing. Let's go. Still have, like, never heard this kid say a word. And now, now it's like also awkward because I'm like straddling him, you know. He's like there in front of him, in front of me, and my big white legs are just like next to him. And but we go down the, the ride and we're shooting up. And when that master blaster blasts us up, the loudest, funniest scream erupts from T's mouth, and he begins to just laugh and scream, and it made me laugh and scream, and I loved the ride like 10,000 times more than I had the time before. Now think about that. Same ride, spread 45 minutes apart. One was by myself, and it was kind of okay. One was with someone I barely didn't know and kind of felt awkward around, and we did it together, and it was amazing. And I'll tell you that story to to show you that joy is meant to be shared. It's better when it's shared. And here's what here's what's beautiful about who God is. The Bible says that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means that God for eternity has shared in joy with himself. He's always been on the tube, you could say, on the ride with another. He hasn't been alone. He didn't have to create because he was alone. So why did he create? to welcome us into his joy, to welcome us in. All creation is a gift, and it all exists to make God known to you. And he's the source of this gift. But I want you to see how it's ruined. How it's ruined. The joy in this party is ruined apart from Jesus. Imagine the party. Got the family, the friends there, there's laughter, everyone's having fun, the dance music's going, like the awkward uncle has probably like finally worked his way out onto the dance floor. Everyone's having a good time, the wine's flowing, but then it runs out. The wine is gone. And so now it's awkward, it's sobering, it's shameful for this family, because usually those parties would go on for days. 
but they've run out of wine and the party is ruined. The party is ending too soon. And I think we can relate with this. Can you not relate with the feeling of the party ending too soon right now? I'm still grieving over the way last year ended. It felt like that year ended too soon for our seniors. Freshmen, I bet you felt that way about your high school. That that awesome senior year you were going to have. Maybe some of you are like, well, I'm kind of glad I'm out of high school. I get that. But for a lot of you, I bet it felt like it ended too soon. Seniors now. I bet it may feel like for you that this is, this is ending not the way that I wanted to, and it's ending too soon. And that's how this world often feels. That's how joy is ruined is when there's scarcity to it, when it can end. Because the wine here runs out and it ends. And the good times in this world always do. These, they always end. And don't let this moment of clarity about the truth of this world pass you by. Because we're living in a moment of clarity right now. That the joy always ends. There is a shortage of it in our world. Like the wine at Cana, it always runs out. And for us, oftentimes our solution is, well, I just got to get some, I, I got to get things to make this better. I got to get more religious. Or I got to get more money. Or I got to get um, more success or a better relationship. But Listen, all of those things that I just said are good things, but they're all just signs pointing to the source of the real giver, pointing to the true destination. They aren't the ultimate destination. If I told the trap kids that I was going to take them to Schlitterbahn and we drove down to New Braunfels tomorrow and we pulled up to the sign for Schlitterbahn and I was like, all right, guys, get out. We're at Schlitterbahn. Look, there's the sign. There'd be a lot of ticked off trap kids. They'd be like, this, is, this was a ruse. You tricked us. That's not what I want. That's not ultimately satisfying to stop at the sign. And yet that's what we do, isn't it? We stop at these signs that God has given us that are intended to point us to the destination, to the source of the joy. And listen, all of these wonderful things in creation, money and sex and friendship and yes, alcohol. If you look to these signs, which are God's goodness to us, If you look to these signs to be your ultimate joy, they will leave you empty. They'll leave you empty because they run out. And the same is true for any signposts that God gives us. And one way that we sin against God is by neglecting him in favor of the signs that are meant to point to him. But he's the destination. He is the one that we long for ultimately. But we replace him for these signs. And look, I've got to say this because this is being broadcast to college students. And I'm preaching like a passage about Jesus turning a lot of water into a ton of wine. This is why God both gives us wine, which the Bible says gladdens the heart in Psalm 104. That's not like a taste of wine. Wine that like gladdens the heart. That means like you've drank enough for it to do something to your heart. God gives us wine that gladdens the heart, but he also condemns drunkenness. Because our over-imbibing in anything, whether it's alcohol or money or the pursuit of success or beauty or whatever, whenever we over-imbibe in something, it's a way that we reject the giver for the sake of the gift. And God, listen, God doesn't hate this because he's like a big sulking God. He's like, mm, they, I want them to like see me and not the gift. Ugh. He's, that's not why that's a sin. 
God doesn't want you to do that because he loves you too much. Because he knows that if you settle for the sign that it will run out one day. And he's a good father and he doesn't want the joy to end. If God is the source of all goodness and beauty and love, then to reject him is to put yourself in a place where the goodness, beauty, and love in your life will one day run out. But this story tells us that God cares deeply about you and he cares deeply about your joy. So final point, joy restored. In this story, we see that Jesus plans to give us a deeper, greater joy. Now listen, I'm not Jesus, thank the Lord. But if I was and was going to do my first sign, probably wouldn't have picked this one. Got to be honest. Probably would have picked something a little splashier. Maybe raise Lazarus from the dead. Maybe calm the storm. Maybe do something really public like go and feed 5,000 people fish and bread. And those are all things that Jesus did. But he shows up to Cana, which by the way was like a podunk town. This would be like going to College Station. okay? And he he goes to this podunk town and he does this miracle for this no-name guy who's having a wedding. But what he does is he makes about 150 gallons of the most delicious wine anyone's ever had. Do you know how, I looked this up, that's like 900 bottles of wine. Can you imagine if like your friend showed up to your wedding with 900 bottles of wine? They'd be like, I think John's got a problem. (laughs) He brought 900 bottles of booze to this party. Like, who is this guy? But that's what Jesus does. And what Jesus is saying in doing that is that he's all about bringing joy. In other words, Jesus is the life of the party. And and you need to know, this is consistent with who God is throughout the Bible. God sets a feast before Adam and Eve in the garden. God is always setting feasts before his people. He, He brings his people through the wilderness and sets a feast of heavenly bread and quail before them in the mornings. He takes them into the promised land, a land that he calls a place flowing with milk and with honey. He commands them to live their lives around calendars of feasts. So every year, Israel had to have these feasts, the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of the Trumpets, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. And get this, in Leviticus 25, we see that once every 50 years, God made them, he told them, have a year-long feast. I think that's what we need to do after this COVID thing happens, by the way. Year-long feast. God tells them, don't work and feast for a year. The year of Jubilee. David says, God, in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me. God is always setting a feast out before his people. It's not surprising then that when Jesus shows up in Matthew 11, Jesus says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus feasted. So much so that people looked at him and they're like, that guy's gluttonous and a drunk. Because Jesus is about joy. And that's why he shows up and makes 900 bottles of amazing wine at this party. He's about joy for these people and he's about joy for you. The joy of Jesus, you have to know, was jarring to the stodgy religious types of that day. Who looked at him and said, man, this guy's, this guy's a drunkard. Or he, he's a glutton. But you need to know that Christianity is not about losing your joy. I think oftentimes we think like, if if I'm a Christian, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to lose joy. It it reminds me of a time when I sat down, when I first started with RUF here, the students long graduated. 
sit down at Starbucks over on 24th and I'm getting coffee, which by the way, love to do. If any of y'all want to meet up, hit me up. Um, but first question this guy asks when I sit down, he looks across the table from me. He's like, okay, let's just cut to the chase. Can I have sex with whoever I want and smoke pot every night and still be a Christian? That was his question. I was like, man, that's so awesome. Like, thank you for asking an honest question that like everyone wants to know, right? But what's the question behind his question? Am I going to have to lose my joy, the things that give me joy, if I become a Christian? Because I don't want to lose joy. But he's stopping at the signs. He's stopping at the signs and not seeing the destination. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it in his um, speech called The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So here's the deal. If you become a Christian, you get something so much better. You get the source of all the goodness and pleasure and beauty. You get your father. You get your friend. You get Jesus. You get the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You get joy. Now, did you see Jesus' response when his mom comes up to him and is like, they're out of wine? It's a little weird. First off, he's like, woman, what does this have to do with me? And it's like, that kind of sounds strange. Like, is Jesus being surly to his mother? He's not. Later in John 19, he calls her woman when he's hanging on the cross. And it's a very tender moment. He says, woman, behold your son. He's, he's entrusting Mary to John, saying, like, treat him. He's going to take care of you like a son now, mom. He's not being surly to her, but he's definitely, he is, in a way, distancing her and reminding her of who he is and why he's here. He says, my hour has not yet come. It's a cryptic response. But all throughout the book of John, we see Jesus talking about his hour, this hour. And it's the hour that he's going to the cross. You see, the way that Jesus is ultimately going to pay for us to be able to have joy in this world, he's going to do it at the cost of his very life. That's how committed God is to your joy. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And that joy is the joy of bringing you into his joy. He went to the cross to bring you into his joy. This is Jesus' response to the joylessness of this world. He paid the price to fully and finally bring it in, to bring the joy. This is the God who is so committed to your joy that he doesn't make you earn it because you and I couldn't, friends. Instead, Jesus earns the ability for us to have joy with his life, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. And Jesus lives the life required to enter into God's joy and by faith alone, not by what you do, but by believing in Christ, you are given the credit for the righteous life of Jesus that brings you into God's pleasure and joy. Jesus is committed to this. I want to tell y'all uh, to close about um, my uncle Reed. Um, to appreciate 
what I'm going to read um, from you that Uncle Reed wrote. You need to know a little bit about my family. So when my mother was eight years old, her mom died from cancer and from the treatment that she received. Uh, and um, she was the oldest. She has a younger sister and a younger brother. Her younger brother is Uncle Reed, who was a baby when his mother died. And I love my uncle. Uh, he's hilarious. He's a great storyteller. And so his daughter, my cousin, has started, she signed him up for this thing called StoryWorth. I don't know if y'all have heard of this program, but basically it sends somebody uh, a question every week. And they, um, it's usually for like a parent or something. And they, they write the answer to that question. It keeps them, it kind of collects their writings and then makes it into a book at the end of the year. Um, that you get to have. It's really cool. So, but Uncle Reed's been sharing with us his answers to the stories or to these questions as he's been going through it. And he sent me this this week. And the question was if you could go back to in one moment in history, what day would you go back and relive? And in, in his writing, he's like, man, you know, I've thought about this before. Like, I'm, I'm sure like going back to a day in the life of Christ would be incredible. I remember my history teacher saying he would go back to the Sistine Chapel and see Michelangelo painting. And then Uncle Reed was like, maybe, maybe I'd go see like JFK and like what, you know, really like see what actually happened on the day he was shot. But then he writes this. Aside from all of these, my choice, however, is much, much sweeter and simpler. I would go back to Knoxville, Tennessee, August 26, 1949, and witness the wedding day of my mother and father. I've seen home movies of their reception outside at Uncle Harvey's house. I can see the joy and excitement in their young faces as they stand in a receiving line and visit with their guests. He was just 22 years old. She was three days shy of her 22nd birthday. I could see everyone I love all there in that place, hear their voices. I could pretend to be the wind and wrap them in my arms, maybe sneak in some kisses on their cheeks. Don't we all want to go back to a day like that? To see the faces of the ones that we love. To wrap them in our arms. To kiss their cheeks. Jesus wants that for you. And he came to earth to make it so. How does the Bible end? If you look at the end of the of Revelation in chapter 19, it ends with another wedding. It's the wedding where Jesus is finally united with his people. And on that day, we will be wrapped in the arms of the one who loves us and who has been giving us signposts of his love all along. Friends, I want you to consider the end of the John 2 passage. The disciples see this sign and they believe. Don't you want this joy, this hope for eternal joy in the life to come? To be with the source of all of the good and all of the joy? It's not here in this world. Jesus came into this world to offer it to us. And it's free to any sinner who would come to the maker of the feast and ask to be let in. He's paid your way, so come to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've welcomed us into your joy. And we ask that you would give us the faith to believe and to follow you into it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.